So when is enough enough? And what do you do when enough is enough? When I was in graduate school in a major city of a major country that was not my home country, my wife, LaDonna, was working as an intravenous therapy nurse in a large hospital. The entire experience for both of us was an educational adventure. One Sunday morning, she arrived at work for her 7 o'clock a.m. shift, and she immediately got a call to go to one of the multiple ICU units to do an IV start. As she entered the room, she saw a patient, a nurse, and a police officer. The patient was a gunshot victim who had been shot in the leg, his kneecap blown up. As she was doing her job, she got the gist of what had happened. Just as she was finishing, she got another call, stat, from another ICU on a different floor. When she got to the room, there was a patient, a nurse, and a police officer. It was a guy with an eye blown out by a gunshot wound, and she heard the same story from literally the other side of the fence. Two neighbors who had never had much use for each other, but had never worked at it or tried to work it out. And early on this Sunday morning, very early, because this was now 7 a.m., the one neighbor had decided to mow his lawn, and the other neighbor decided that enough was enough. He got out of bed, went outside, and said, you can't do that this early Sunday morning. The guy with the lawnmower said, oh yeah, watch me. And when the guy who had had enough turned around, stomped back into his house, the guy mowing his lawn knew what that must mean, and he too went into his house. They both came back out with their hand guns in their hands and shot each other. Enough was enough. Unbelievable, or is it? Just several years before that, I was working with a man I respected highly, and still do today. I knew he was under tremendous pressure, which included unfair criticism, and, and yet he modeled for me how to take the high road, how to keep focusing on the big picture, the goal. He helped me see that when you trust the big God and give yourself totally to, this, to his vision, you can achieve way more than you ever thought possible. I had claimed earlier Colossians chapter 1 verses 28 and 29 as the vision that I wanted to live in. Paul reveals what it is that keeps him going, even, even when enough is enough. Jesus, he says, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone fully mature, complete in Christ. And then he says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all of the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. That's what I wanted to be. That's what I saw in this man. He pressed on tirelessly, faithfully, and for the most part, joyfully and gracefully. And working together was fun. And then one day, in a very public context, spontaneously and surprisingly, he just he just reacted to something that in a big picture was a little thing, but it tipped him over the edge. He took out his major frustrations on a minor issue, on someone who was not part of the problem, 
It was like, where did that come from? He had reached his enough is enough moment. Things had built up to the point that a little thing caused a major explosion, a tipping point. 60 seconds that signaled the beginning of the end for him in that environment. We're looking this winter at the, at the impact and the life of King David, the man chosen by God because he was a man after God's own heart. We're in that period of life, of his life, where he's been anointed by God to be the next king. But God has not yet removed from office the reigning king. And Saul, the reigning king, is not making it easy. He's doing everything in his power, funneling all of the resources he has at his disposal as king to make sure it will not happen. For over 10 years, David is a fugitive, always on guard, always watching his back, living hand to mouth. He's running for his life when he should be reigning in his destiny. David had started his fugitive life in chapter 21 with a bit of a glitch, demanding from God instead of trusting God, and it didn't go well. A lot of innocent people are killed, but, but he's back on track. And last week, chapter 24, we saw David at his finest. King Saul is in David's hands. And David does not take him out. David wrestles well with the question, how do I know whether this open door is an opportunity from God to walk through or a test from God to resist, to see whether I'm willing to let God deal with it and not take it into my own hands? He passes that test big time. This week, the next scene, David encounters another common life situation, not an open door, it's a roadblock, a barrier to his survival. In this situation, he faces another common dilemma. How do I know whether a roadblock is a barrier to crash through or a test? to see how fully I trust that God does have the situation in his hands. Last week, David models powerfully what it means to trust God for the better story. In chapter 24, verse 22, the whole scene ends with this powerful statement, So David took, gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David made an oath. No matter how much you pursue me, I will not kill you. And Saul got him to extend that commitment to his whole family. You see, one of the common ways kings of the day secured their throne when they got it was to knock off anyone from the former king's court and family who might ever challenge you to the throne. David says, I will be better than that, setting the Lord always before me. I will not be shaken. David gives himself to living by a higher standard than returning evil for evil, taking life into his own hands, taking his story into his own hands. But that's yesterday. Today, the very next scene, we say, see David failing in an opportunity to trust God for the better story. As we come to chapter 5, David reaches his enough is enough moment. Well, 
tipping point is what we'd like to call it. But when enough is enough in our minds, it's not really a tipping point. It is a tripping point. So what is your default, your, your go-to reaction when you have hit that enough is enough moment? Your reaction that turns it into a tripping point. If you can't think of it, ask someone who knows you, even just a little bit. They'll tell you. So, what can I do to keep my enough in the enough is enough moment from becoming a tripping point? Turn to the ninth book of the Old Testament, the pre-Jesus part of God's story, 1 Samuel, chapter 25. If you've got a Bible app, use that. On your church online uh, device that you're using, on the bottom right, there's a Bible section. Turn to 1 Samuel 25. We will see two things from this episode in David's life that, that we can do to make sure that our enough is enough moment does not become a tripping point. Listen to David's enough is enough experience. Chapter 25, 1 Samuel, beginning at verse 1. Now, Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man named Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep, so he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men since we came at festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their master these days. Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you, strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his sword. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. What in the world is going on here? It's like, who are you and what happened to the David who's trusting God for the better story? Well, the way this event is recorded, we're, we're given some clues as to what happened to David. Some, some should have seen it coming and been more ready clues. Let's see just a few of these. Not all of them, just five of them. And then we'll see our first enough is enough lesson. 
Number one, the first clue. Remember how the last scene ended? David has just pulled off this huge win, not a military win, but a win in his own growth in his journey with God. He's put wheels under this, I have put the Lord always before me commitment by saying that he will trust God for the better story rather than taking vengeance into his own hands, rather than taking control of his story. There's a lot of energy, a lot of passion in that commitment. It is, it is a high, a spiritual high and an emotional high. But the natural course of life is what goes up will come down. A high is very often followed by a low. It just happens. It's the curse, actually, of a passionate person, right? David's trust in God regarding Saul is unbelievable, but he gets tripped up by a fool. That's what the name Nabal means, fool. Sometimes when we win in a big battle and, and we get a promotion at work when in some way life elevates us and it, we just become a, a little complacent. We let our guard down a little bit, right? And where do we often do it? At home, in our place, with the people that we're most comfortable with, that we can trust the mo most. But there's more. David has, hasn't just experienced a big win. David is also coming off a huge loss, several losses, actually. The chapter begins, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. Samuel, the kingmaker, God's prophet who had anointed David, God's prophet who had told Saul it was over and confronted Saul, when he wasn't following God, apart from Saul and David, Samuel was the most significant player on Israel's stage at this time. By the way, what are, what are these books about the story of Saul and David called? They're called the books of Samuel. He was the human foundation for both Saul's and David's kingdoms. Samuel was still the symbol of God's sovereign leadership over his people. As the Last of the judges, Samuel has a reputation for wisdom in settling disputes. As a priest, he intercedes with God on behalf of the, of the people. As a prophet, he had not only anointed both Saul and David, he had counseled them and confronted them. David knew that Samuel was one of the few men who had the wisdom and the guts to speak God's truth to power to Saul and to him. And, and that gives David security because he does want to be a man after God's own heart. He does want to put the Lord always before him. Now, although Samuel and David were not in close contact at this point, Samuel's loss was a significant blow. David knows it's the human foundation on which he's building. And so one of the questions in David's mind is, whoa, what license, what liberty will this give Saul now that Samuel is gone? And who will help me make sure I stay on track now that Samuel is gone? And at the, uh, the loss of Samuel it is right on the heels of what? Another loss. Jonathan, the one friend who strengthened his hand in God, is, is now out of the picture. 
My father died suddenly when I was 30 years old. I'd been on my own for a decade. I was now happily married and a young leader in my own right. I was not that terribly close to my dad, but I had a high respect for his practical wisdom. But when he was suddenly gone, for months, I had this feeling that, that the man on the road ahead of me, who had blazed a trail for me, whose footsteps I was following in ways that I wasn't even consciously aware, he was gone. And I was now, I felt, like in the lead in this journey in a new kind of way. There was no longer a trail to follow. I was, I was surprised how disorienting it was for me. That's how... That's what Samuel is to David. A big win, a huge loss. And David has just had to make another move. Another, okay, another pivot. Deeper into the desert. Verse 1, it says that David moved down into the desert of Paran. One, one more time, starting over again from scratch. Not just for himself, but now for his growing family and the team that is coming around him. Can you see how things are starting to pile up? Where David must be at mentally and emotionally, how close to the tripping point he must be, but he's not there yet. David is not one who believes that trusting God for the better story means just sitting around and waiting. He finds a way to make himself useful. For months now, less than a year, but more than a season, David has been doing whatever he can to add value in his new environment, to serve people in whatever way possible. This rough, rugged country was was not just a great hiding place for David. There are plenty of bandits who are hiding in there and who swoop in and prey on travelers and sweep in and, and loot settlers who had been making something out of this rugged land. Like the Philistines, We saw back in chapter 3, who would raid the harvested grain from the threshing floors at night outside the city of Keilah. These marauders would do the same thing with those who had sheep. Let them raise them, ready them, and then swoop in and rip them off. David, the shepherd, and now brave warrior, sees an opportunity to keep his men busy and developing as a team while he waits for God for the better story. He decides to to keep his men busy by patrolling and protecting the landowners in the area. And and at the same time, he's building relational capital in an out-of-the-way region for when he gets to the throne. Good move, David. But supplies are getting low, and winter's coming. And once again, the pressure is building up. And one day, he sees a ray of hope, the opportunity to cash in on some relational equity that he's built. It's sheep-sharing time, which was also the fiscal year-end. Time to see how successful we have been this year. And wonder of all wonders, it's been an amazing year. Nabal may have been a fool, but he was a shrewd businessman, a bottom-line Uh, the bottom line rules kind of guy. Regularly, and probably increasingly, he would have to write off a significant portion of his assets, livestock and also herdsmen, to theft and murder. But not this year. 
This year, the festival party is the best ever. We got a lot to celebrate, guys. To celebrate and to share. You see, shearing time was also sharing time. It was the time when thanksgiving was given and when sharing was assumed. Now, David knows that Nabal does not have a great reputation. He knows Nabal was, was a, has a really sharp pencil. He was too stingy to hire someone to protect his sheep. He'd done the math, and it concluded that the average financial loss of men and sheep year over year is less than the cost and the pain of hiring security. So why would I do that? But David, trusting optimist that he is, knows that this rich rancher is a descendant of, what does it say? Caleb. He's a Calebite. Remember Caleb? Caleb and Joshua were the only two spies who saw in this land what God saw. A descendant of Caleb, which means he is from the tribe of Judah, David's own tribe. And even the most tight-fisted and cutthroat of businessmen want to look generous at festival time, especially with a distant relative. On top of that, both according to the laws of God's people, but also according to the hospitality customs of many cultures of that time, the social contract required that Nabal share, especially with anyone who has been part of his success. And so David sends his men to give Nabal the opportunity to look good, to fulfill his social duty and share just a little bit. Just maybe, Nabal will say, hmm, here's a guy who has not harmed any of my men, has only helped, has done it for free. I can make myself good by sharing just a little bit. What David asks is a reasonable request. He humbles himself to give Nabal the opportunity to do good and look good. But Nabal is a fool. That's what his name means, fool. Not fool in the sense of stupid, poor businessman. Fool in the sense of true wisdom for how to live life in God's story well. And so David gets a flat no to his legitimate request. His, his ray of hope has just, been, has just disappeared. And then the final straw, which becomes the tripping point. Not only does Nabal not help David, he uses the opportunity to stick it to David in his most vulnerable place. David? Who's David? Everybody has heard of David, and what he says reveals that he knows exactly who David is. Who is this son of Jesse? Son of Jesse? That was Saul's favorite put-down to David. A son of a nobody is just a double nobody. And then he says it flat out. Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. He's not God's anointed. David is just a rebellious servant in it for himself. What he's saying is, I'm all in for team Saul. You think I'm going to help David? 
Nabal has attacked David at his most vulnerable place. For David, it's like, this is personal. What does it mean when we say this is personal? It means his ego is wounded. David has reached the tripping point, and David sees red. David no longer even seems to be thinking about what he's saying. Has, has someone ever said to you, listen to yourself? Listen to yourself. Can't you hear what you're saying? That's what the narrator of this story wants us to be asking because in verse 13, we can't see it in some of our English translations because it would come across as, as too redundant, but three times in verse 13, the narrator uses the word sword. The, the English Standard Version has it very well. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every one of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. It's like, hint, hint, sword. What had David said to Goliath? This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into my hands. The narrator wants us to be asking, is there not something wrong with this picture? Was there not one of David's men who would have said, hey, David, Remember your own words to Goliath? How does this fit? Can't you hear what you're saying, David? Remember what you just didn't do and won't let us do to Saul? How you told us we would trust God for the better story? How does this fit? Nabal is just a mini Saul, a lower than Saul Saul. Should we not think this through just a bit more? But when we've hit the tripping point, we can't see it. We no, lo no longer want to see it. We want to justify it. Okay, let's stop there and do what David didn't do. Let's, let's pause and think about it. Why is it that David doesn't see it? Why is it that he's about to do the opposite of how he says he wants to live? Well, haven't you just... Haven't we just seen it? He's had a lot of these things happen to him. And at some point, it becomes enough is enough. And that is what we allow ourselves to think. Yes, it feels like enough is enough, but it only becomes our tripping point when we use our context. What has happened to us? One thing on top of another, not just to explain it, but to excuse ourselves. We begin to believe that we can, if we can explain it, we can excuse it. We say things like, well, what would you expect when this has happened to me? You know what happens when you put a cat in a corner. <laughs> yeah, but do you really want to be a cat? We need to be aware of our context, all of our context, and realize, whoa, given all of the things that have happened, that are happening, it's no wonder that I feel this way. But explainable does not mean excusable. 
It wasn't for David, and it's not for us. When we're trusting Jesus with the better story, feeling this way does not have to lead to reacting that way. It becomes the context for trusting God for the better story. Remember those four life processes that we've talked about several times, the way we act in certain situations? The journey we often go through when, when, when life happens to us and how we respond to it. Number one, we react. And then we reflect about it, and then we release it through trust and confession, and then we can rebuild, right? What would happen if we flipped the first two before we react? When the urge to react comes up, when it feels like the bubble's going to burst and we can't stop ourselves from saying something, doing something, what if we trained our mind, we can do that, you know. What if we ask someone to help us see those situations as warning flags, not as green lights? Warning flags to stop, to do some reflecting first, put on the table the multiple things that are putting us at the tripping point, and rather than using it as an excuse, a rationalization for reacting, we say, you know what, I need to think through it a little more, just, just how this fits into trusting Jesus for the better story. Can you imagine how much pain we would save ourselves and others if we would just get it into our heads, that one line, just because I can explain why I do it, what brought it on does not mean I can excuse doing it. The closer we get to our tripping point, the more methodical, reflective we need to be. And at some point, by God's grace, we will realize, oh my goodness, I just didn't do that reaction thing that I usually do. I don't have to react. Can you name some situations where, where you've done the react before reflecting and now you're excusing it, you're, you're explaining it away. Wouldn't you like to be able to do it better than that? It begins by reflecting first so you don't have to react in ways that you have to walk it back or just keep giving yourself the same excuse. David dealt with Saul magnificently, but there's always another Saul. And he trips over a mini Saul because he doesn't recognize his tripping point. But if there's always another Saul, will not God also give David another Samuel, another Jonathan? It's beautiful, folks. Just before David gets to follow through on his reaction, that's exactly what happens. Somebody comes in and speaks David's own words back to him and helps him do this reflection piece. Even though David's mind is made up, David is still teachable. Do you realize how amazing that is? Yes, you do. I do. David recognizes wisdom when he sees it, even though it comes from the last person he would expect and perhaps the least likely person, David would listen to. Into the picture comes, of all people, Nabal's wife. 
Abigail. Listen to the wisdom of this great woman. The best speech, the best sermon in the entire books of Samuel. Well, let's, before we listen to our speech, let's, let's listen to the story, the context. Verse 14, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to, to give our master greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time they were out in the fields. Near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us. The whole time, we were herding our sheep near them. Now, think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. We can't get through to him, Abigail. He's not listening to us. He's your husband. Is there anything you can do? Because if you can't, we're all going down, including you. Now, that's a lot of pressure. But this is Abby's Esther moment. Maybe you were born for such a time as this. Verse 18, Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five shays of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead. I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. So, get the picture. Abigail has sent the servants ahead of her with all the provisions David asked for, which means David has them. He, he got what he hoped for, probably more. And then onto the seed scene rides Abigail. Verse 20, as she came riding into riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. Can't you just see the movie? One lone woman entering a narrow, dangerous ravine to face 400 men, angry men, coming down on her out for revenge. Will they be thankful? Will they walk it back? Maybe even bless her? Or will they rip her up? Her men had told her about David's reputation. He never harmed anyone. And she is just hoping, praying, that she will be able to wake, awaken that part of David's heart. If it doesn't work, she's toast. But as it is, she's toast anyway. So better go out trying. And the story freezes there with, with that question in Abigail's mind to show us how slim her chances really are. Verse 21, David had just said, it's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that none of it is missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. With Saul, David made a vow before God and his men that he would not pay back evil for good. He would not avenge himself. But in reaction mode, David has just made another vow to God in front of his men, there is nothing 
that is going to stop this story now. He has to follow through because this has become personal. His reputation, which means his ego, is on the line. Can you feel the tension of the moment? But this is not David's moment. This is Abby's moment. Verse 23, listen to her speech. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift, which your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's, servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, because David, you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. Wow. Now that is one speech. Let's just very quickly see what she says to David. Number one, David, remember God's promise to you. He'll make your name and your family great. He's going to do it, David. You have shown us all how to trust God to protect and provide. David, you are developing a stellar reputation. You fight the Lord's battles and let God fight your battles. Remember, David? David, you do not want to have to look back and say, you want to be able to look back and say, no evil was found in me all my days. You don't want this on your conscience when you get to the throne, David. And then, not on behalf of, but instead of her foolish husband, Abigail, asks forgiveness. Abigail has done for David what David did for his men with Saul. Abigail has helped David live more fully in trusting God for the better story. If, if I could paraphrase in one line, what Abigail is so powerfully appealing to David to see is, David, enough is enough does not have to be your tripping point when you see it as your be better in Jesus moment. There are several lines that, that seem to be used a lot today that I've come to, well, detest may be too strong a word, but not much. When we do something wrong, we know it's wrong or less than what we want to be. What's the thing we say? Well, that wasn't really who I am. 
that really was not who I am. We use that to try to excuse ourselves. Yes, it was who you are, but it doesn't have to be. And the other one that we're hearing a lot these days is, we are better than this. Well, no, what we've done shows we are not better than this. But we can be. If we are more aware of the things that may, might be building up to a tripping point, and we see that it can be our better than Jesus moment. What if when we looked at our context, not as an excuse, but a warning, you're very near your tripping point, which is your weak point, your point of weakness. That's our excuse, right? You got me at my weakest moment. What if we looked at it like Paul does with what in his life is a persistent and seemingly permanent part of his context that wears him down and almost wears him out? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in light of Abigail's speech, in light of the tripping point thing, listen to what Paul says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this away from me, but he said to me, my grace is enough for you because my power is perfected in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I, I, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, because when I am weak, that is where Jesus' strength can take over. That's when I am strong. Enough is enough does not have to become my tripping point. When I see that right at that point, my point of weakness is the place Jesus is there to show through me that enough is enough doesn't have to trip me. It can be my be better in Jesus moment. Jesus came to die for you, not just to forgive you for the times you realize you blew it, but to live in you so that nothing can keep anything from being a be better in Jesus moment. So, I'm going to wrap it up there. David saved from following through in his reaction by reflecting on the better story, the bigger story. God gets rid of Nabal, and David sees he so much needs the wisdom of Abigail, he marries her, which is a bit of a complicated thing. We won't get into that today, but let's just wrap it up with a couple of questions. Number one. Are there any ways in which I am using my context, the things that are happening to me as an excuse for not fully trusting Jesus for the better story? Letting go of control to Jesus requires making sure that I am taking control of myself, not my story, myself and my reactions. Question two, who are you looking to or perhaps not looking to and listening to as the Abigail in your life. Just like God will allow Saul's in your life, he brings other Jonathans, other Samuels, ones who don't just buy your explanations, who call you to make your tripping point 
and be better in Jesus' moment. So, when you feel you're about to react to control, make sure you have control of yourself and see the be better in Jesus moment this could be. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that when life comes at us in waves, in blows, and even in, in great temptations, we do not always look to you at our point of weakness to give us your strength. Father, thank you for this reminder today from your word. We give ourselves to seeing Jesus in our weakness as your strength for us, in us, and through us. In his wonderful, powerful name we pray.